we're off and running on the sixth step. Again, to understand that these steps are only uh, steps as points of clarification, as ways to describe a very interrelated process, like the separate twines of a rope, that they all form the rope. And we can pull them apart and talk about each one, but they really have no meaning except in relationship to each other. And I think this is a, a very, very important point to understand, especially when we come to uh, areas like the one we're in now, which is wise effort, right or wise effort. Because it makes no sense at all for you to attempt to be mindful if there's no view being held within your mindfulness. In other words, if you labor under the effort to be mindful, just to be mindful, then what is it that's motivating your mindfulness? What is it that's Where's the aspiration? Where's the intention? What's the direction that your mindfulness is leading? You see? And so the effort has to be based in view of connectedness. Yes? Because unless I perceive the world as something other than what I think it to be, unless I intuit the world to be something other than I see it to be, then I'm just reinforcing through my effort separation. But if I can use my effort to bridge separation, now there's a story of a man some 2,500 years ago who sat down under a Bodhi tree and resolved that he would not get up until he understood because his heart's conviction was so sure that there was something else. There was such certainty that it wasn't an effort to be forceful, self-forceful, an effort to be willful. But I'm not, this doesn't make any sense. I'm not getting up until this thing makes sense. See, that's a very different way of sitting underneath that tree. Let me read to you a man, a contemporary, Martin Luther King, whose view of connectedness allowed him to write this. We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win yours in the process. That's the view of absolute conviction that this is unjust that two races acting in separation is unjust. And being so attuned to the view of connection, not through harm, not through violence, but just through our presence of that view, 
that whatever you offer, whatever you throw at me, will be absorbed within my ability to hold that because it is under the right view that I hold all of your inflictions. Do you see the power of that? Do you see it makes no sense at all when right view isn't held within right action? When our efforts are in aligned with the view and the aspiration of a deep-seated sense of the oneness of things. Let us not stray from that understanding. It does not mean that we don't slip off again and again and again. And that is where the sixth step comes back. The sixth step is to reassert, oh, something's wrong here. Something's wrong in the way I'm acting. So the precepts actually are indicators that wrong view, if we slip off the, and we find ourselves doing a preceptual action, we know that somehow we've slipped off the view. We've slipped away from it. Okay, let's bring back the view. And in the Buddhist literature, the Buddha describes right view as just that. Abandoning the wrong factors of the path is right effort. One tries to abandon wrong view and to enter into right view. This is right effort. One tries to abandon wrong uh, intention and enter into right intention. That is right effort. One tries to abandon wrong speech and enter into right speech. That is right effort. One tries to abandon wrong action and enter into right action. That is right effort. One tries to abandon wrong livelihood and enter into right livelihood, etc., etc. And it's abandoning is that you just, it's, it, the heart won't go there. This isn't right. It's not in accordance with what is true. And therefore, I just let it go. You see, it's not abandonment in the sense of aversion or turning away or in terms of right or moralism. That's just more wrong view. But it's abandonment in the terms of release. I won't do that anymore. I can, I will sit here and let my mind do anything it wants to in terms of telling me about separation, to paraphrase Martin Luther King internally, and I will accept whatever it inflicts upon me, but I will not be dissuaded. I won't turn away from that, because it makes no sense. Life doesn't make any sense. Life isn't worth living from wrong view. It's that strong. And so the force or the effort to maintain and sustain that view is all important in the way that we allow our meditation practice to unfold. First, we have to feel the urgency and to be honest, many of us, and I think all of us from time to time, really have a secondary interest. Our spiritual growth is secondary to whatever is the most predominant form of our entertainment. And we have been used in this culture to be to be sort of soothed 
because we have the affluence, we have the resources to be able to develop a very gentle and pleasant style of life. And so many of us have fallen asleep within that lifestyle. And we haven't really stirred, our hearts haven't really stirred because we're, we're sort of bathed in just the pleasant, in the soothing quality of the pleasant. And we have the means to maintain that. And so maintaining the status quo, maintaining life as it has been for me becomes my overriding passion, not in discovering the truth, but lo, status quo is impermanent. Status quo cannot be maintained. And therein is the rub. That's the problem. But are we motivated? Where is our motivation to put forth the effort to realign ourselves with what our heart genuinely knows is true? We awaken through our suffering, not in spite of our suffering. And this weekend, every weekend I have a new group of people I was with. This weekend I was with, I did a day long in Everett with people who have under the 12-step program, who have had histories of alcohol or drug abuse and have decided to write their life and because they have as they so uh, eloquently put it, they have bottomed, they have seen the bottom, and, and they, that's it. They're, they can't go any further down. And there is a great passion that arises when you've seen the bottom. There's a great passion, the, if I can go back to the previous week, in which you have been labeled and sent a murderer and sent to prison. The motivation through that label, they came to me afterwards and they said, would hospice ever allow people like us to volunteer for them? See the depth of the pain of what they have done To understand that we always have the ability to move, to, if we put forth the effort to move into right view, regardless of what actions we have done in the past. That we are not prisoners of our actions, of our past actions. That's what this meditation is about. That we can redefine the course of our lives, that that's possible. But it takes effort to do that. It takes motivation. It takes willingness and commitment to do that. It takes a Martin Luther King resolve because you see the absolute injustice of it. You see, this isn't a 99% practice. It's a total practice. And most of us are comfortable around the 50% range. 
I mean, I, how many of you seriously did the homework or really even reflected upon it? How many of you really put forth the intention to make your lives different? And this, I'm not scolding, but I'm just showing what it takes to line ourselves up. What it takes. And what it takes is the effort to engage in right view, which means there was a woman uh, from that uh, 12-step program, and she came up afterwards. She says, you know, I don't really connect with oneness, but I connect with healing. Healing means something to me. I said, well, healing and oneness are the same thing. You heal to everything that troubles and disturbs your life and you will find yourself in oneness. Because healing and connection, inclusion, openness, kindness, are all the same words. And when you can feel that effort, when you genuinely ask yourself, what's going on here in me? What's going on in this moment? What's going on? See, in that moment, we're interested in connecting with ourselves, not in blaming or self-punishing. or Total ownership. What's going on in here? Perhaps we could ask ourselves that question before we sat down, every time we meditated. What's going on in here? In me? Let me look deeply. What's going on? Let me connect with what this is. Let me not wait for the pleasant experience to arise. So how does view inform effort? Well, I, you can certainly tell the difference between effort from the mind and effort from the heart. The Buddha sitting down under the Bodhi tree and Martin Luther King is effort from the heart. It's not self-aggrandizement. He's not doing it for him. He's doing it because of the conviction and the absolute certainty of the way. And so to question and look at our motivations, which is right intention, you see, to use the meditation, to use the awareness to really look at what motivates our practice. Why do we sit? If everyone will pick up a homework, it questions us that way. Why do we sit? What's doing? Why are we doing this? And to look honestly. And even if the motivations are false, our willingness to face those false motivations is right view. Do you see? It's, there's no self-blame in this. Even if our commitment is not total, which most of our commitments are not, including mine much of the time, that's not the point. If I'm willing to look at that, am I willing to face it and say, okay, this is the way I am right now. Let me look at that. Not as a whitewash. This is the way I am, so, so what? But really to own it, to look at it. Our minds get strayed in thought when we sit. How long before we, after we wake up to the fact that we're dwelling on thought, 
How long after that before we come back to the breath? Isn't it much nicer to stay out here floating? Are you aware of what you're doing when we do that? Are, you, are we aware of the self-indulgence? Of playing that edge? Are we aware that we're not willing to make the effort? Are we aware of that? Not, again, as some kind of self-judgment, because our willingness to connect, even with that which seems to take us away, heals ourselves to that very thing, connects ourselves to that very thing. So it's not like we all have to have these pure thoughts all the time. It's just that we have to connect with whatever thoughts we're having, whatever motivation we are currently experiencing, whatever effort we are putting forth, and to honestly and sincerely align ourselves so that we see that with clarity. And then we're back home. I mean, I speak to some of the more experienced practitioners right now. Charlotte and I were talking about some of the retreats that we have and how both of us often do not look forward to sitting in a group with experienced practitioners because they're often the ones, I'm saying this intentionally to shake some of you, often the ones who are so engrossed in the, in the sophistication of their practice that they're not genuine. They're not authentic anymore. They've lost some authenticity. And they are therefore more reserved, less natural, more pretentious, more arrogant. I know that. But many of us, most of us, will rest somewhere on our practice where Dharma's word, the words of Dharma no longer stir. We know that. I've heard change. I know that. <laughs> Death. No. There's nothing to it anymore. Emptiness. See, the words no longer strike a chord and no longer resonate with us. We've become too sophisticated in our practice. Nothing new can approach us. We don't see anymore. We become blinded by our very sophistication. This practice can take you adharmically as well as dharmically. It can work against you as well as for you. But if we keep ourselves aligned in effort to right view, to right intention, to right effort. But many of us expect the practice to show us some sense of progress along the way. And many of us expect us to, you know, start showing ourselves to be meditators in action or in mood or in disposition. 
and some kind of temperament. Maybe now I can, I'll be more tranquil, more relaxed. And very subtly there can be a form of pretension towards that. Sort of an acting out of it. Because what we have been using the meditation for is to enhance our temperament, to enhance our character, self-improvement, rather than to connect, rather than to be present and to understand and to be honest with what we see. And some people will ask after a great deal of effort, genuine effort, I don't seem like I'm getting anywhere. Often it's because the very embodiment of the change is inherent in who we are. And you can't perceive, a mirror can't perceive itself. So the qualities that come up through naturalness, through spontaneous, are often not observable to oneself. Because those are the qualities. Those are the natural qualities of spirit and mind when left alone. It's like, show me, some, show me love, you see. I've got to possess it somehow. I can show you what love will do. I can show you the artwork that love will create. So we get attached to the forms and expressions that our love takes not to love itself. It's not, with, not to love that we turn, it's to what love will make or allow to happen. It's the doing or the forms. And there's a statue in the Hindu tradition of Shiva, who's a many-handed god, standing on the back of a human being who is studying a leaf. And the implication of the statue is that we're so lost in the forms and expressions of life, we miss the fact that God is dancing on our back. And is it ever enough just to be a little more affectionate? Just to be a little more caring? Just to be a little more attentive to life? To be more sensitive? that we feel life in our hearts in a different kind of way, isn't that sufficient for proof? Have we become so cynical and jaded in our expectations that that's not enough? Are we only looking towards enhancing this so that I can go out and demonstrate the fact that I'm a meditator? That I can be more sophisticated and tell people? <coughs> is my effort from the mind or the heart? And is it towards releasing the heart or controlling the mind? So the effort that is needed is not the anticipation of a result, but in seeing our own beauty, 
our natural beauty. There was a time when I was so full of self-doubt, I was uh, actually with Ram Dass and, and um, uh, he said to me, you know, uh, after a, a long conversation, he says, you're so full of self-doubt you can't see your own beauty. And he was right, because the self-doubt was something, that was the problem. And we get so caught up in our problems that we miss the fact that God's dancing on our back. We get so lost in the pursuit of changing ourselves, of becoming something or someone, of ending this problem and working on that and fixing this. And we labor under such hard and rigid rules for ourselves. We wouldn't treat anyone the way we treat ourselves. We wouldn't treat, we couldn't treat anyone. We would break them. And yet, it's so easy to dispense that force and violence. Upon ourselves. Those are just illusions of a problem. We have never been limited. We are unlimited in this moment. But we struggle with ourselves. We put forth such effort to change. We hold ourselves in such, to such standards that are unreachable. And those very effort, that very effort compounds the struggle, forgetting entirely that the Eightfold Path is about ending struggle, ending suffering. <laughs> That's all it's about. But we still see ourselves as the problem that needs to be fixed. And the path will somehow allow me to transform that problem into a success because I feel like such a failure. These are the assumptions of self. This is the method of self. And Buddhism has nothing to do with that. And let us be sure that no matter what teacher we are with, and I encourage you to go and experience many teachers, that we do not listen to a teacher that moves us against right view. And there are many who have not understood sufficiently, and they will teach their ignorance as well as their wisdom. And for us to say no, no. Mm -mm. Well, I've done enough of that self-brutality. I'm not going to do that anymore. Because in anyone's vocabulary, being inclusive, being open, 
also includes being self-kind, being gentle, compassion, love, affection. How do we think these things arise in us? Unless the means that we employ encourage those very ends. We can't brutalize ourselves and expect ourselves to be loving. So in the end, right view, right effort towards right view is the effort towards self-kindness. In this culture, there are two things that operate against us. Most of us have not had to work to stay alive. Survival is taken for granted. And perhaps it's been a little too easy for us. And when things are real easy, when the Dharma in the old days, <laughs> before my time, <laughs> people used to wait out in front of Zen monasteries in the depth of snow with that kind of urgent effort. And then perhaps the Roshi would let in one or two people. Here, the Dharma is planted so wide across the continent. I'll do a little bit of this retreat, a little bit of retreat over there. I'll do a little bit of that. It's kind of a casual relationship to something that is not casual at all. sort of relaxed approach to something that in its heart of hearts, if it is to move, if it is to really genuinely move us, must be embraced with totality of commitment, of effort. But it's the way it's arising in this country. But we don't have to allow ourselves to be lackadaisical in our standards. The second is that we have a tendency, our tendency for most of us is to put our efforts where our beliefs are, what we believe in. Most of us believe very genuinely in the sense of a permanent sense of self here. And so our efforts go towards accentuating that belief. Many believe that they deserve to be punished. That that's, that they have, like the prisoners, full of guilt and shame about past, about the way they were, about somehow their actions defining them as individuals. That somehow what we have done characterizes your spirit. And therefore I have to do penance that's my belief. And so if it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't hurt me, then it must be too easy on me. And self-kindness, for God's sake, that doesn't make any sense. I want, I have to suffer. 
And so we look for methods to substantiate our belief. Our self-mistrust. But if we hold view, you see, I keep coming back to this, it is so important. If we hold view, the view, we go to the basis of the teaching, to alleviate suffering, the Buddha said, is my only teaching. And if we hold the view that the way towards that is through connecting and healing and working in alignment with that direction, with that understanding, and so that my effort always goes towards that, then brutality is so obviously against the Dharma that any effort that has a sharp self-judgment associated with it, self-criticism, self-abuse, I don't, I don't even have time for Don't waste my time with that. I mean, when I, I, I started practicing, I was so lost, as Ram Dass aptly put it, in my self-doubt, in my self-confusion, in my self-hatred that someone would tell me to sit for three hours, and I would sit for three hours, and it was total self-brutality. I was in agony, pain, but by God, I created even sharper sense of self-dislike, did nothing to ease that burden until we become so weary, until we bottom out, as the 12th step per se, until we've just come to the bottom of that, of our self-brutality. There's no end to it. It doesn't ever let up on you. you never, we never find a moment of repose within that. Because it has its own logic has its own view, has its own intention, has its own effort, has its own strategy to life. And it's all so clear and detailed. And we seek methods, we substantiate efforts to try to alleviate that internal pressure by looking for people to, say, approve of us. And so we lose our self-centeredness, our centered who we are, through seeking other people's approval to alleviate the pain that we're putting on ourselves. And so our efforts go towards approval. Our efforts go towards wringing some desperately needed sense of okayness from you, because I don't feel it in me. So I have not to be a cook, but the best cook. You see how perfectionism comes in here? And still, even though we hear it 10,000 times, you're a great cook, you're a great this, you're a great that, does nothing to convince us to dissuade the belief because we just don't think they're really seeing who we are. I, keep a, I kept a little thing that said, if you knew who I was, you know, if you saw, 
if you saw who I was and didn't like who I was, that's all I've got. So the Martin Luther King quote. The willingness not based on fear, not based upon history of activities, not based upon my self-abuse, not based upon my shame and guilt. That's over. No more of that. We've lived the life of that. That's in it. That's finished. I've turned that corner. Now let me move towards connection. Let me move towards something real, towards something substantial, towards something true. And watch what the heart does with that. It leaps out. I can't wait for that. And we just can't get enough. And true joy, the expression of joy. But the willingness to actually look and see. That's where the view starts the willingness to look and see, and to see with honesty and sincerity just what is there. Because to connect with the way things are is right view. And the effort that I put forth to keep connecting, to keep sustaining that connection, and we come right along with it in kindness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.